Job chapter 1. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to take turns holding feasts in their homes, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would send them and have them purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming through the earth and going to and fro in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has in your hands, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plying and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabians attacked and carried them off. They put out the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Well, how can God allow suffering? A hugely important uh, question for us this evening. Uh, let me set the scene a little so that we know roughly where we're going. In, in a sense, there are two levels at which uh, this question is asked. We can look at it at a sort of a, a framework level, if you like, a philosophical question, a theological question. How does all of this fit together? And that's really, really important. And for lots of people, uh, they, they, we, we really struggle about how we get our heads around this. And, and in many ways, that's what we're 
we're going to be doing tonight, trying to give ourselves a little bit of a framework in which to understand it. But then too, of course, it can be asked at a, a personal level when something happens to us, when we find ourselves in the midst of a difficult time. And then, of course, it's a much more raw question, a much more a, a personal question. C.S. Lewis uh, illustrates that many ways. He wrote um, at least a, a number of books on suffering. Uh, one he, he wrote called The Problem of Pain, and it was very much at that sort of framework level. How does this all fit together and so on? And it's a very, a very helpful book, very sort of rational and logical book. And then his, his wife, Joy, passed away after a, a difficult battle with illness, and he wrote a book called A Grief Observed, and it's a, it's a much more raw and, and personal uh, story. John Piper, uh, really helpfully, I think, uh, distinguishes between what he calls micro-reasons why people suffer, and and macro reasons, so small and large reasons why people suffer. So the micro questions are questions like, why is this person suffering in the way that they are, at the time that they are, uh, for for as long as they are, to the degree that they are? And, And usually, we do not have answers to those questions. Actually, Job in the Bible is a bit of an exception in that regard. But usually, the Bible does not address the particular reason for a person's suffering. But what Piper says really helpfully is that that should not make us just say, well, it's all a mystery. There's, no, there's nothing we can do to think about it at all. Because actually, the Bible does deal with lots of those sorts of issues on the macro scale, the larger scale. The Bible has a lot to say about why suffering is here and why the world is the way it is. And that larger backdrop, which we're really going to look at tonight, is, is really important for us to grasp. Important for us to grasp so that we're able to answer the questions, of course, but also important for us to grasp so that whenever we find ourselves plunged into it, at least we've got something in which to orientate ourselves. And, and, and perhaps if you are here tonight and you're just in the middle of something that's really, really difficult, this is not going to be super easy for you to, to orientate yourself within. You're going to be wanting to know, but why this? Why this? And, and, and this might not answer some of those questions. And some of the ways that John prayed, perhaps, earlier on are much more where our hearts need uh, to go. Let me say something just first of all as a first point. There are a number of things that... that that we want to, to address tonight. And let's say the first thing, the very fact that we have an issue with suffering, that we struggle with it, the way the question is asked, it sort of says, this points away from God. But I, I want to suggest to you that it points to God. It points to God. There are lots of people who say that the reason I cannot be a Christian is because of the fact of or the degree of suffering in the world. And we shouldn't dismiss that lightly. Maybe some of us who are listening feel like that. C.S. Lewis himself was an, an atheist for a time, and he would have said at that time that the very reason he didn't believe in God was because of what he saw in the world, the suffering in the world. But what Lewis came to realize was that the very fact that we struggle with suffering and its presence actually points to the existence of God. After all, as if as some people would say, this world is all that there is, 
And we've just arrived here entirely by chance, by sort of naturalistic evolution and so on. Then we have no right to say it shouldn't be this way. We've no right to feel that whatever we find ourselves in isn't quite right. We've heard uh, perhaps this famous Dawkins quote uh, before. In a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt Other people are going to get lucky, and we won't find any rhyme nor reason for it, nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at the bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. Now, if the world really does operate, as Dawkins says, as as Darwin said, on the survival of the fittest, then the fact that somebody is doing better than us and is causing us pain, or or, or the fact that we are are struggling in some ways, really there's no reason for us to complain about it. There's just absolutely no reason at all. It's just the way that it is. But we know that that's not how things are. The very fact that our hearts cry out, why should this be happening? It points in another direction. Suffering troubles us. Our own sufferings trouble us. But even the sufferings of others, the presence of suffering and injustice in the world troubles us. We have a sense that it ought not to be like this, that it's unfair. And when someone suffers injustice, we, we feel that this is not right. And that points, Lewis says, that points to the fact that there is more than this world, that there is a God who is good and for whom our hearts yearn, that there is such a thing as perfect justice for which our hearts cry. So the presence of suffering in this world, far from being an argument against God, C.S. Lewis would say, and others would say, is really an argument for him. Now, I don't know what you think about that, uh, the very fact that you think in terms of right and wrong, uh, if, if, uh, if you're honest, if you're somebody who, who doesn't believe in God at all, that, that's a real question I would suggest for you. It, it really does imply that you believe in something which is objectively good and, and against which all else is measured. So there's, there's just a first point to say, that really the presence of, of suffering and the fact that we struggle with it really does point to the fact that there is such a person as a perfect and just God. Well, how does all of this fit together? What is this framework? Well, you know the classic objection. Lewis uh, highlights it in The Problem of Pain. He sums it up very succinctly. Here's what people often say. He says, if God were good, he would wish to make his creatures happy And if God were almighty, he would be able to do what he wished. Therefore, God lacks either goodness or power or both. That's what what people say. The presence of suffering, people say, indicates that either God is not good or he's not powerful. But of of course, a God who is not good or not powerful is simply not the the Christian God. We believe in a God who is good and powerful. So so let's think about those things. Let's, uh, first of all, say, well, look, God is good, and He's good all the time. This is what the Bible claims about God again and again and again. We're not going to dwell on this, but John began the service with Nahum 1 verse 7, the Lord is good, a refuge 
in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Psalm 107, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Remember, someone came to Jesus once, Mark chapter 10, and addressed him as good teacher. And Jesus said, Jesus challenged his estimation of good. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. So, so the very starting point of the Bible, the very underlying assumption of the Bible is that God is absolutely good. Another assumption of the Bible is that God is in control of all things because there are some people who try to sort of get round the problem of suffering and evil by trying to get God off the hook, by sort of saying, well, God's not in control. God's as annoyed about all of this as you are. And they somehow imply that things have caught him out or that he knows about them, but he's not able to do anything about it. But that is not the God of the Bible either. The whole Bible teaches us that God is absolutely in control. We see that in this story in Job chapter 1, in the whole story of Job. You see here that Satan does some things to Job, but he does them by God's permission. And so, God is entirely in control. Job sees this himself indeed. He is, is uh, away, and, and, and those that they're, they're, those, though there are uh, obvious causes to some of the troubles that come to those around him, the Sabaean raiders and who take his flocks and so on, he nevertheless is able to speak about God bringing these things upon him. So he, so he knows that God is not caught out by this stuff. Now, this picks up a really important theme of the Bible, that God is entirely in control of all things, even the bad things. God is happy, as it were, to be on the hook for these things. And yet, at the same time, He is not to blame for sin in the world. So, for example, in James chapter 1, uh, you'll, you'll see that uh, James can speak both of God using trials to mature and complete us, and it can also say that God cannot be tempted by evil and does not tempt anyone. And we see it here in Job, don't we? Uh, God does not stand behind the things that happen to, to Job in the same way that he stands behind blessing. It's, it's clear that, that it is sin who brings these things on Job. It's not directly God who, who makes him sick. It's not directly God who sends the raiders. We might think of the cross. The cross is the great place that we go for this, isn't it? On the one hand, Jesus was crucified by evil men who conspired against him, schemed and plotted. They make these evil decisions for which they are entirely responsible. And yet at the same time, God has planned this and sent his son into the world to die on the cross. As Acts says, as his power and will had decided beforehand would happen. So, so if we're to sum up the, the, the story of the Bible, we're, we're able to see that, that God uses evil, but he's not the author of it. 
Because in fact, as we read the Bible, we see that God made this world without evil. Everything was good. And he is working towards a time, as we'll see, when, when evil is no more, when there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. So God hates evil. And yet he can still use it to accomplish his good purposes. We'll see more about that in a moment too. Now, why is that important? It's important because whenever we suffer, we can hold on to the fact that, that God is both in control and he is good. And, and the alternative to that is just horrific. We can hold on to the fact that God is in control and that he is good. Well, we're still left, aren't we, with this problem highlighted in the objection. How can God be good and powerful and yet suffering exist? Well, here's the next thing to say, that there is purpose, that there is purpose. One of the really noticeable things about the story of Job is that we're able to see behind the scenes in a way that Job, of course, cannot. He doesn't know that he is proving to Satan that he trusts God even when everything around him is going wrong. And whenever God does speak, he, he doesn't really seem to answer the questions that Job brings to him. Job has been asking, if you read on in the book of Job, it's really good to do that. Job asks why and why and why, and, and God doesn't really answer him. In fact, he begins to ask Job questions. He says, who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Effectively, he's saying, this is hard for us to hear in some ways, but effectively he's saying, now, Job, you're not God, and you cannot understand this. You cannot tell me what to do with evil. You think you should know how this universe works, but you do not, whereas I do. So, so even whenever God speaks to him, Job is left having to trust God without answers. Job doesn't really get his questions asked, answered in this book. And that's really, really important because you remember what, what Satan's accusation is at the start. He is saying, look, Job isn't really devoted to you, God. He, he's actually doing all of this because his life is cushy. And by trusting you, he gets all the stuff that he really wants. And, and Satan actually puts his finger there on something that's pretty common, isn't it, in our hearts. That, that, that some people, and if we're honest, most of us at some times, we're really after what God can give us. You know, we say, I want to be happy. What is it that, that God gives me? He gives me peace of mind gives me security, all of those things incredibly important to us. And sometimes we can find that we, we are not really loving God for God, but we're loving God for what we can get. And you see, if, if, if God had said to Job at the beginning, right, Job, there's something going on here, and you're going to be really, really hard-pressed for a time, but whenever you get through all of this, you're going to come out of the other end of it far, far more blessed than you are now. Well, Job might have looked at this and thought, well, it's going to be tough, but it's an investment. 
I'm going to get something really, really good out of this on the other side of it. No pain, no gain. But no, God does not tell him because he genuinely wants to, to show that, that Job is trusting him for who he is. He, he, he's, he's loving God and trusting God, even though he struggles, in spite of what he gets. And Job's not perfect, but he does show that he's not just out for what he can get from God. And so he says, though he slay me, yet shall I trust him. So one of the things that we need to know that, that, that God is after a people who, who love him, not just for his blessing, and part of what he does is allow us to suffer even whenever we don't really know why. Now, something else we need to see here is that, that God has done something about suffering. God has done something about suffering. It, very often the, the, the cry goes up, God, why don't you do something? And, and of course, we're going to see here that he has and, and he will. Now, what does he not do? What does God not do? Well, God does not take away all the causes of suffering immediately. We instinctively think that would be a good thing, don't we? We, we would see our, our, our toddler in, in difficulty. We, we want to take away the cause of the suffering. And why does God just not take away all the causes of the suffering? Why does he not deal with the, the dictators and the abusers and the murderers? Well, where do we stop? Where should he draw the line? Because the problem is it's not just the dictators and the abusers and the murderers who cause the suffering in the world. Isn't it true that, that we are part of that picture? We are the ones who, who uh, cause the sufferings of others, even remotely, by being part of the richest 10% in the world or whatever it is, and, and, and others dying in poverty. Maybe we grabbed a bargain yesterday and upgraded some of our tech yesterday and, or on Friday and Black Friday, and, and, and yet the conditions of some of those who dig for cobalt in Congo is horrendous. We're, we're part of the problem. You see, if, if God is to, to deal with all those who cause suffering, which of us would ever stand? So, Sam... 103 verse 12 is our hope because we find that God has found a way to deal with the sin in our lives by separating it from us. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our sins from us. And this is what the, the Bible tells us, that, that, that God finds a way to deal with the problem without blotting us out. If it was just that he was to deal with all the causes of sin, and suffering, well, then we would have no hope. But he finds a way to deal with it without blotting it out, without blotting us out. However, it is incredibly costly, and the cost rests on him. So Jesus comes and suffers. Jesus was a man of sorrows. Isaiah 53 says this. He grew up uh, before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, 
and we esteemed him not. Jesus, familiar with suffering. But, but not only did he come into this world to be familiar with suffering, he actually came to do something much more remarkable, and that was to suffer for others. Isaiah 53 goes on, surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. And yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. He, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So he suffers with us, but he suffers for us. He suffers because God lays my sin and your sin on him. So he not only suffers because of sin, but he suffers for it. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. So there's a sense in which he actually suffers because of God. And that's amazing, isn't it? That, that, that rather, than, rather than step back from a suffering world, he, he, he steps into it. And the Father wills that he suffers, and this suffering is not pointless, but it is redemptive. It is his suffering that is your hope and, your, and my hope tonight. Though the, light, the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. So Jesus will consider his suffering, which was unimaginable for us because he was carrying our sin. Jesus will consider his suffering to be worth it because that's how he wins people to himself, you and me. It's interesting, isn't it? In Job, we see Satan assaulting an innocent man and causing him to suffer. Now, we know that, that Job... Uh, though he was tremendously upright, was not perfect. And we, we see in places that that's the case. Uh, but but you, you see there an, an, an innocent sufferer in a sense. And of course, there is a, a better Job, Jesus, the truly innocent sufferer. He is the one who, who entered our world naked and died naked and, and, and really said, may the name of the Lord be praised. Job felt that he was abandoned by God, and Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For Job, it was, it was worth it to trust God. He comes out the other end blessed. For us, it, it is worth it to trust God. We're never the losers. The reward may not be in this life, but it's worth it. But for Jesus, he serves God, and it costs him everything. God says to Jesus, in effect, if you trust me and serve me, it will crush you entirely. He does that for us. So, so this really cuts across perhaps what we, we might think about God as if he's sort of standing off dispassionate in some way. Maybe some of the charges that we might lay before him, God, why would you do this? But you see, in Christ, he suffers. He doesn't stay away. It means that he cares. It means that he's active. He means that he rescues, and Jesus does all of this for you and for me. 
God has done something about suffering. And then the last thing just to say in a word or two is that God will do something about suffering. The story is not finished. And that's really important for us uh, to know, isn't it? If you know the story of of, uh, uh, Joseph, for example, you you know that that, uh, he's just perhaps about halfway through his story whenever he he can start to begin to see some of the things which God was doing. But he, he, he knew that it wasn't complete. And what God was doing for, for, for Joseph wasn't complete. But, but for us, you see, he is working to, to bring an end to suffering. Revelation ends with that great vision of God's fully attained kingdom. And this is what it says, these words that we know. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. And he who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And see, that's the, the, the end of the story. Although, as Lewis says in the Narnia Chronicles, every chapter gets better after that. But that's where God is going. And if God is working to that end, then we must now know that our days are to be seen in the light of that end. I came across this uh, quote from Lewis, uh, and he spoke about heaven uh, like this. He said, they say of some temporal suffering, no future blessing can make up for it. Not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. Friends, that's hard for us if we're in the middle of a hard time. But it does say to us that, that, that what we're going through now, if we're going through tough times, it, we're not on our own. And it's not meaningless. And God is not distant but he is at work. We, we, we want to, to look at, at what's happening around us and, and our own lives and say, now how can you do that, Lord? But Lord, the, the Lord that we cry to is the one who is working to end all suffering and the one who will allow us to see that one day we will understand he does all things well. So suffering, it's not, it's not easy to think about, especially when it gets close. But this is this framework into which even our dark days fit. And that is that our God is good. And he is good all the time. And he is in charge. And, and for now, he, he He uses suffering. And in Christ, he came into this suffering world. And Christ suffered. And he suffered for us so that 
for us if we're, if we're trusting in Jesus Christ, all of our suffering will, will be gone. I wonder in our extremity, is he your Savior tonight? As he suffered for you, do you claim that for yourself? Do you say, Lord, in everything else that's going on, I'm so grateful that what you did, you did for me, and I'm resting in you so that today and tomorrow I know that I'm in your hand. Well, if you don't know him like that, do turn to him and come to him, even in the midst of our difficulties.